The views expressed on the following program are not necessarily the views of WIBA, its management sponsors or staff. Broadcasting live from Planet Madison, where everything is beyond parody. This is the Vicki McKenna Show. To be a part of the program, in Madison, call 321-1310. Statewide, call toll-free at 877-235-1310. Or email vicki at wiba.com. Now, here's Vicki McKenna. Good afternoon. Welcome to the program. I'm Vicki McKenna. News Talk 1310 WIBA. Dave, you've got the window. How's it look out there? Still nice? Still look nice? I see a little bit of sun. You know what? I've been cooped up. I am feeling cooped up. Cooped up. Felt cooped up all weekend. All we can do is go to Roy's room, get the... Get the hammer drill. And Let's we can just, put a can we not, there. you have a window on this wall. Can't we just, you know, cut a giant square right here so I can look out onto the retention pond and the cranes? I'll get the proper paperwork and we'll get right on that. All right, man. Because I am feeling cooped up. All right. So I'm stuck in this building. I hope you're all able to enjoy a little bit of the break of sunshine that we got. After it was raining this morning, I'm driving and it's raining. I'm like, ah. Get into my office. It's raining. Feeling cooped up. Here's what's coming up on the program. Leah Vukmir is going to join me. We're going to talk about something called Birdies to End ALZ. That's coming up on the program as well. Uh, Sean Duffy, Congressman Sean Duffy, will be on the show. And uh, lots of other stuff. You know what I did over the weekend, though, being cooped up? I decided to embark on something I like to call Project Tanager. Yep. I'm a little bit obsessed with birds. I'm sure they appreciated being stalked, too. Project Tanager. That's what my, my entire weekend was pretty much devoted to researching how to attract this, this beautiful crimson bird into my backyard. And then, and, and, on, and on Sunday, it was Saturday, actually. Saturday, I kept going to different places. I'd get home from a place and I bought some stuff, you know, for the birds. And then I... Oh, I gotta go, and I had to run back to a different store. And I was doing this all afternoon in the rain, just to try to. Well, I'm trying to get one kind of bird to my backyard. When you posted the picture of the mealworms, the mealworms, yeah, a meal at that time. Were you? Sorry. Yeah, I bought. I bought how many? Six, 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 two-pound bags of mealworms. Oh yes. <laughs> Go big or go home. I want those birds. Now, they're in my county, so I want those birds in my... If they're in my county, I want them in my backyard. Um, So that was what I did to try to abide the rain. Anyway, coming up, we're going to check in with Leah Vukmir, who just won the endorsement at the GOP convention over the weekend. Congressman Sean Duffy will join me as well. And, and Mike Heller, our friend Mike Heller from next door, is going to stop into the studio as well. Welcome back to the program. Convention took place over the weekend. And the Republican convention endorsed State Senator Leah Vukmir. Um, 70, I believe she got 73%. It takes 60% to get an endorsement. Um, a candidate that would get 60% plus at convention would receive the party's endorsement. Uh, so that's what happened. Uh, Vukmir got 73 percent 
And so she now receives the party endorsement, which means that the party can help her out with fundraising, overtly help her out with fundraising, um, you know, lists, phone calls, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I'm I'm looking here at an article and I'm seeing that Leah's opponent, Kevin Nicholson, said anything under 85 percent is a wipeout. That's that's delusional. Ron Johnson got just a little north of 60 percent. Uh, when he received the GOP endorsement. And I don't think anybody was describing that as a wipeout. Um, 73% is pretty strong endorsement. Uh, and it does mean that I think we're going to see a lot more action um, as Senator Vukmir continues on with the campaign, if only because what you don't have, Leah, is PAC money. For the most part, you're you're actually relying on uh, fundraising yourself, and it's great to have you on the program. Congratulations on the GOP convention endorsement. Thank you, Vicky. I'm very excited about it. So happy to be on your show. It was a historic endorsement from the uh, people, the Republican Party of Wisconsin, the huge grassroots support from the people who actually make things happen and are vital to winning in fall. All right. So that's, I think, what maybe people don't understand about the convention is that, yes, there are people who go to the convention who are elected representatives. But by and large, these are Republicans who, you know, man the phones and and are the party activists at the ground level, county to county, town to town. This is the army of volunteers that get the work done. They're the people that are the influence makers in their communities. They spread the word. They work hard, they make phone calls, they man uh, the phone calls, the phone banks, they get the yard signs put out. It is a very important piece of the puzzle, and uh, I will have access to all of the field offices around the state. And as you know, I have been traveling all around the state, and I think uh, part of that victory shows that my message resonated with them. Because after all, Vicki, as you know, I started out as a grassroots mom with a cause, and they understood that I was caring um, starting as a, a grassroots organizer myself and have now gone from grassroots activist to making a change and making a difference in Wisconsin, and they want to see me take that change to Washington. So the question is, I mean, so that you got the party's endorsement and you have the party's resources to rely on. Um, I mean, Tammy Baldwin is going to basically be able to mint money here. Um, our, the concern is, is that we've got a lot of hot races. Are we going to, is there going to be enough to spread around? I know that the enthusiasm for the grassroots, there's, there's plenty of enthusiasm to spread around. But in terms of just dollars, I'm worried about this just because looking at Tammy Baldwin, you know, this is she, she's basically, you know, the, the DNC. She, she's the, the bank teller of the DNC, I swear. Well, I know that is something, of course, they're going to try very hard to guard and protect that seat, although her favorability ratings are very, very low. And everywhere I go in the state, people feel that she doesn't represent their values, their ideas, our principles. And this is going to this momentum of having this endorsement is going to attract more in terms of financial resources coming to the campaign. And that is something that will help us as we move forward. You know, I think you're right. Her her poll numbers, her approval numbers are lower than I think she would be comfortable with. Um, and her and her actually people who don't even know who she is 
Um, that's a surprising number as well in Wisconsin. That's, I think, really the biggest problem is that right now um, you don't have a lot of people who are understanding the stakes in this race just yet or even who the players are just yet. And so right now it's whoever's on the air. And so we need to, you know, these dollars, this activity, the lists, all of that. Hopefully, in fairly short order, we start seeing a lot of stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at Tammy Baldwin already running ads, trying to recast herself as some kind of great moderate. Um, you know, not the progressive Washington insider that she has been her entire career. Well, that's the big joke of Tammy Baldwin. Now that it is an election year, she's trying to appear like a moderate, trying to appear as though she's done something. And that's why this endorsement is so incredibly important, because Vicki, our primary is so late. And our primary is in August. Now, having the party's endorsement now really bridges that gap between now and that late primary. And it does give us uh, a greater opportunity to highlight and contrast the difference between Tammy Baldwin and myself. I offer the best alternative to Tammy Baldwin, the best person to take her on, my proven consistent track record compared to an extreme liberal who doesn't want you to have an extra $2,000 in your pocket to give to your family to help your family out, somebody who wants to continue to add more government entanglement in your health care, somebody who doesn't stand for life and, in fact, avoids votes on life, and somebody who has such careless disregard for our veterans. And i got to tell you, Vicki, this uh, mom of a military son, you know, is going to take her on head-on on this issue of Toma VA, what she did, or what, or what I should say, what she didn't do there is unconscionable, and I'm going to make sure I remind her of it every single day. You know, as I'm thinking back on 2012, Leah, um, that was just a brutal Republican primary, and because there weren't resources available right after convention, because there wasn't an endorsement in, in that race, um, that was that was four weeks of dark darkness on the airwaves, uh, on television, on radio. Um, you know, there wasn't someone who was able to instantly reinvigorate the fundraising. So it just, it, I mean, it's just... It's, it, it actually does matter quite a bit simply because of bridging that gap. That gap needs to be bridged right now. I, I, I'm, I'm at the gym and I'm watching on the, you know, the treadmill television, all of these, in, in, two, in one segment, two Tammy Baldwin ads come on talking about how she, you know, try, she's the one who tried to save Wisconsin artists and cheesemakers and, and she's the only person who cares about the opioid crisis. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, that's that's a smart play simply because she knows right now that there's nothing to counter her her reimagination of her own career. Correct. And that's why I offer the greatest contrast. And you better believe I'm going to be highlighting that contrast. And and I think uh, part of this victory, too, shows that the grassroots have spoken. They want us to focus in on Tammy. They don't want the candidates to weaken each other so that we have that result that happened in 2012. And we need to keep our on a laser focus on Tammy Baldwin right now. And, and that's do. what my message resonated. The 62,000 miles I put on my car, all 72 counties, it showed 35% of all counties. In 35% of all counties, I received 100% of the votes for me, for me. I mean, this is really very heartening, humbling, heartening and humbling to me because I did spend that time to reach out to them and and travel and hear their concerns and that message of needing a proven conservative to go to Washington to help President Donald Trump get his agenda done. They look to me and they're saying, you're the one to do it. And because they know I've done it here in Wisconsin.
You know, I'm, I'm just looking at, I, was, I keep this little long list. It's very long. I call it my, my cheat sheet on Tammy Baldwin here, just on things that she has supported so that people don't forget. This is somebody who is in favor of killing 40,000 jobs in Wisconsin and $10,000 in economic impact by, uh, by signing on enthusiastically with Barack Obama's clean power plan. Wants a right. carbon tax in Wisconsin. Thinks we should have living wage laws. And let's not forget the living wage in Wisconsin is calculated at 25 bucks an hour. And I'm for 25 bucks an hour, but not as a mandate for, you know, for entry level jobs. She she wants to see Obamacare expanded. This is right. you know, the, the sort of just gobsmacking, um, you know, positions that she has held. I mean, she's as pure, a pure progressive, pure faculty lounge progressive as you can get. I mean, you know, suing gun manufacturers, you name it. If there's if it's a left wing position, Tammy Baldwin has taken it. Well, she is so far out there, and I jokingly say this on the campaign all the all the time that she actually is so far to the left that she makes Chuck Schumer look like a moderate, if that's possible. But even she does. Schumer no, no, actually, she does. <laughs> I know. See that Chuck Schumer didn't sign on to Bernie Care, and um, he realized that that was too extreme. But no, not Tammy. And then she comes back at the campaign year. We never see her in the state. Now she's back in the state. You know, putting up these silly ads because she knows she's in trouble. I know that they, I'm the last person they want to, to take her on, and that's why this momentum is very important, and I'm going to continue to work really hard to get our message out. I hope your listeners will help. LeahVukmir.com. I need an army of soldiers to join the, the army that we've already created, but it's time to tell Tammy that her ideas are old, they're not working, and they're very dangerous and detrimental to the progress that we've made, not only in Wisconsin, but across our entire nation. We need people who are going to go to Washington and help get President Donald Trump's agenda done. I'm sick and tired of the fact that we have a handful of senators in Washington who have forgotten what it means to be a Republican. I've never forgotten. I'm a conservative, always have been, always will be. That will never change. One thing I want to ask you is you go to Washington. Let's just assume you go to Washington. You defeat Tammy Baldwin, um, and I certainly hope you do. Uh, And now you're up against the wall of of a supermajority. I mean, that's, that, that is not something you're used to. You've never had to deal with a supermajority. Um, to my mind, that supermajority is what's standing in the way of common sense Republicans and conservatives in the Senate of actually advancing some of the very conservative positions from the House of Representatives. Are you willing to go to Washington and, and demand that we actually govern as, as the state legislature so effectively have in America? Yes, and I will say it with authority because everything we have accomplished in Wisconsin would not have been accomplished if we had that uh, supermajority in place. And I have said it over and over on the campaign trail, this uh, filibuster rule must go. We must uh, be able to advance the agenda that the people have asked us to do. That is what our job is. That's what we've been able to do in Wisconsin, and we need to be able to do that in Washington as well. I think if there are a handful of us who get elected or across the country who feel this way, and, and there are a lot of people that are running uh, basically on this idea to be that extra voice, we can make a difference. I've watched you know, the majorities grow in the Assembly, in the Senate, and it does make a difference, and I believe it can uh, make a difference in Washington as well. I tell you, it will, it will, it's, it will make all of the difference. Imagine if, if you had to put Act 10 through the 60-vote rule 
in the United States Senate. It wouldn't it would never have passed. It would not There's have happened. A- Correct. So, so what we're what we're doing now is we're relying on executives. Um, we don't do that in Wisconsin. We actually rely on the legislature. That's our voice. You're supposed to be the one setting the laws. And by and large, that's exactly you actually function according to the definition of, of what we the people government is supposed to be with some quibbles here and there that I can that I can complain about. But but basically, at the, in the main, philosophically, that's what we've got at the state legislative level, maybe not in California, but here in Wisconsin, not in Washington. In Washington, as we decry. The, 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 the power of an executive. The executive has too much power. The courts have too much power. You know why the executive and the courts have so much power? is because Congress has abdicated every, almost every bit of its responsibility via this rule in the Senate on behalf of us. So we have to rely on the executives. We rely on the courts. And you know what? Just simply relying on executives and courts is not going to be what ultimately you know, pulls apart the progressive, the, the progressive disaster that is so many bad policies. The balance of power has definitely shifted away from where it should be. I think we've been able to maintain that balance of power here in Wisconsin, and that's why we've accomplished as much as we have, and we have to make sure that we do the same in Washington. You're absolutely right, Vicki. Well, I don't know if, we, if we've got enough people willing to do that. What I'd like is well, just to see a whole can't. bunch, a whole bunch of freshmen, you know, a whole bunch of juniors, newly elected junior senators right out of the gate saying, um, excuse me, Leader McConnell, uh, we're going to be taking a vote, uh, a simple vote on changing this rule that has gotten in the way of, of th- doing the amazing kinds of reforms that our states have actually led the way in, specifically Wisconsin. Well, Vicki, you know, I've never been afraid to stand up to leadership. I've never been afraid to stand up to my colleagues. Uh, when I believe that we're not following what is our, our principles, our core conservative principles, there's no reason to think that I would be any different in Washington. In fact, that that's why I'm running. I think it's so important that we do have people who follow through on their promises, and we need someone who's going to go there and shake things up. And there is a growing movement of people like me around the country who want to do this, and I've seen it happen in Wisconsin where we have grown our majorities, and I'm not going to throw in the towel and think it can't happen in Washington, and that's why I'm running. All right. Great to have you on the program, Leah Vukmir. Thanks very much, and congratulations on the endorsement. Thanks, Vicki, and people can follow at leahvukmir.com. I'd love their help and support. Thanks for jumping on the show today. You know what else I like, people? I like the idea of conservative woman versus liberal woman. I love that idea. Because your knee-jerk reaction, your gut-check reaction to conservative woman versus liberal woman is conservative woman. It's just your gut-check reaction. Um, As long as Tammy Baldwin can't redefine herself as a moderate, and she will try, she's already trying to do that, as long as people understand and fully perceive that Tammy Baldwin is the hard-left radical progressive that she is, then the, then the contrast between conservative woman, liberal woman is going to be very, very effective for the Republicans this year. That is assuming that Leah Vukmir gets through the primary because she may not. I mean, she still has to get through the primary. There's a primary coming up in August. But think about what I'm saying. Where, where do most people's just sort of gut, where does it go? Somebody who would defend our military, somebody who would defend your own choice in determining the outcomes of your own life, someone who would defend, um, you know, individual community control and states' ability to decide for themselves what direction they want to go into, somebody who would fight against gun bans and suing gun manufacturers, someone who thinks that there are reasonable restrictions that should and and it should be placed on abortion and should be expanded. The gut check on that 
I think, is people will default to conservative woman. I've just, I've, in my experience, that has been the case. So as long as Tammy Baldwin can be defined as the leftist she is, I think that's going to bode well for Leah Vukmir, assuming she gets to the primary. We'll take a quick break. Hey, welcome back to the program. We are talking, we're, and we're going to be talking more about this. We're talking about an, a, an event coming up called Birdies to End Alzheimer's. Birdies to End ALZ.com. I want to get that website out there quickly. Birdies to End ALZ.com. This is a fundraiser where you can pledge per birdie. Um, and I don't want to. I don't want to give away too much here, but pledge per birdie uh, to to raise money for a wonderful wonderful organization that is looking to raise dollars for research, for assistance for families who have loved ones suffering from Alzheimer's, to help people understand this disease better, particularly if you're someone who's just recently had a diagnosis, um, and to understand um, that. That there, I mean, is, if you look at the literature, it looks like we're getting much, much closer to at least being able to unlock the mystery of this disease. And Kelly Kenseth Bussey, am I saying your last name right? Yeah. She's in the studio with me to talk about this, helping mm-hmm. us to raise awareness and make sure people get to this website as soon as they can. We'll tell you all about the golf tournament coming up and how you can pledge for birdies. But Kelly, welcome to the program. Thank you. All right. So your mom, you're, you're immediately touched by this disease because your mom had Alzheimer's. Yeah, my mom was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's in 2003, although after we got more education, we realized she probably had been showing symptoms for almost 10 years prior to that. Trouble telling time, making change, um, getting places on time, real simple tasks that we just, she mainly was a homemaker, so we just thought you know, maybe she was kind of lazy and really wasn't a big deal uh, until we started noticing things more when there were some verbal challenges and then um, she was driving. We'd, she'd come back and there'd be a little scrape on the car. Uh, the folks at the grocery store would tell us that she seemed kind of confused about how to pay for things. Uh, so those were some of the really early signs before we started uh, looking to get a diagnosis. And, how you know, that's the, the thing. How do you get a diagnosis? Because this is something that can't be confirmed. And I want to talk about how, how so few people are actually yep. having their, their doctors confirm this diagnosis ultimately and put it on death certificates so that we know exactly the right. extent of it. But you can't really confirm it. So how do you, you know, how do doctors determine that some something that could be as subtle as just mom bumping the car or forgetting yeah. this or that is actually a really dangerous disease. Yeah. Um, I would say, in a sense, they're going to make an educated guess. They're going to take the information they have. They pretty much can diagnose, I think, dementia. Or my mom had a CAT scan, and she was technically diagnosed with frontal temporal lobe dementia. Mm-hmm. But after she passed away, we had um, donated her brain to the um, University of Wisconsin uh, for research uh, for Alzheimer's. And they were then able, after... Um, an autopsy to give the the Confirmed. final diagnosis of uh, Alzheimer's. So, so some of it's just symptomatic that is creating the diagnosis. Other, you know, it some is. other things can some imaging techniques, but 
But generally speaking, you know, you have to just sort of look for the signs and... Right. It's going to be a lot of more kind of your cognitive tests where uh, motor function, uh, verbal communication, um, it's, it's different than what people years and years ago would have said, oh, my mom's senile. Well, maybe that was dementia and we didn't right. know at the time. But now we're looking at uh, a disease that is really coming to the forefront well, in of sen- our culture. Senile was just a description of someone's behavior. It wasn't really right. a diagnosis for anything. This is a disorder that I know was diagnosed or was, was identified over a hundred years ago, mm-hmm. and and yet still, until there were you know sort of more modern um, medical techniques, you weren't mm-hmm. seeing diagnoses of this, you know, in earnest when it was probably going on for a couple of generations yeah. until you know the it seemed like really started awareness really started in the nineties. Yeah, I would agree with that. At the time my mom was diagnosed, uh, we had very little information. We didn't really know where to go to get information. Even the internet was still relatively new, where now that would be where most people go to look for guidance and other people's opinions. Uh, right now, that's one of the reasons that I'm involved with the initiative to end Alzheimer's. They have uh, really dedicated themselves to looking for a cure and to uh, educate people, which are, to me, more important than you know, medications or how can we slow it down. We need to stop it. Once it started, you don't ever get that back. Once you have lost that memory, it is it is gone. It is like a computer screen deleted. There is nothing there and nothing will ever bring it back. So our best hope right now is really to look for uh, some prevention and you know hopefully this upcoming fundraiser for us will will help so. well and this is coming up well it's coming up uh, next month but you can start making your pledges now at birdies to end alz This is actually a partnership with the Steve Stricker American Family uh, Insurance Foundation, the American Family Championship, and the Golf Effect radio show as well, plus Mm -hmm. a whole bunch of our stations are all part of this as well to try to just get people to make some contributions. Because here's the thing, Kelly. In the last 20 years, I used to, um, way, way back when, I worked as a residential home care provider for... Mm -hmm. Uh, people who suffered from different types of dementia, largely Alzheimer's. And this is sort of the the beginning when we started hearing this diagnosis, this word Alzheimer's. And there just wasn't much in the way of options for for home care, for you know advice to families. They didn't know what to do with their loved ones. They didn't know how to handle this. It was all coming out of the blue. You mentioned no internet. Right. So you couldn't really prepare yourself. There were just, you know, sort of vague, uh, sort of shotgun approaches to treatment. And now you have got, we've learned so much more about the progression of the disease, um, the genetics of the disease, how it functions. It may be eventually creating enough, getting enough information to to find a cure, but Mm -hmm. also giving people so many more resources and helping people care for their loved ones once the diagnosis has been made. So just it's it's been leaps and bounds different from what I remember back when I didn't even mm-hmm. know what was going on. I was just, you know, I was just there to you know, basically watch over people in a residential care right. facility and and I wasn't given much information. Right. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, definitely when you're looking at care, it's extremely difficult to choose how to care for your loved one. Everybody is going to say I want to keep them at home. I can do this. I can do this. Uh, No matter what you think, you can do part of it, but you can't do all of it. 
if there is one thing I learned, it's that one person cannot completely take care of another person. At some point, you have to eat, you have to go to the bathroom, you have to sleep. Well, that person needs 24-hour care. Uh, there's major problems with uh, injuries, accidents, um, and really for my mom, a lot of it was really emotional. I could see that her confusion, she was scared. And like what you were saying, uh, one of the uh, greatest gifts we have right out now, out there right now is anybody who is interested in being a caregiver. It is not appreciated. It is underpaid. It's like it should be, you should get paid 40 bucks an hour to be a caregiver. There is um, nothing more important to that person who is suffering than somebody else who is 100% interested in whatever they need at that moment because it's hard to describe, it's uh, difficult to speak about, but yet inside that person, that person that you love or that person you know, they know what they want, they know what they feel, they just can't tell you. And it's very frustrating for them to, um, to maybe be with caregivers that are distracted or don't have are not being paid well. They don't really care about their job. And I can almost kind of not blame them. They're a lot of people, and it's it's very, very demanding. You know, that you that – we'll go down this just road for a short period of time. I agree with you that if you're going to, you know, start people's salaries at the low mm-hmm. end, you're going to get low-end level uh, competence. That is true. And yeah. when you're talking specifically about a, a population of people with the diagnosis of Alzheimer's or any other type of dementia, um, you want someone there who, number one, is very, very well versed in the information on what's coming. So how do you how do you deal with this? Mm-hmm. You know, how do you handle somebody? Um, never mind what the families are going through. Um, and ready and and able to on a dime just get something done or fix right. a problem if it's an injury or if it's you know watching over someone to make sure they don't hurt themselves or it's just maybe pulling the shades down right. to make sure someone doesn't get to, you know sort of upended and right. distracted by the change and when the sun goes down people can get a little mm-hmm. bit upset and I, I don't think we value that job category very well. And I don't no. know why. I don't know if it has to do with, you know, people's insurance not covering a lot of, of you know, the, the costs of this. It's, it can be very expensive. But this is a diagnosis that more and more people are going to get. We have mm-hmm. more people older now, living right. longer now than we've ever had. So expect there to be, you know, people having this experience much more commonly. Yeah, this is uh, something that... Whenever I talk to anybody about it, I tell them it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. You will know someone. It might be a family member. It might be a close friend. But you will know someone. It will be close to you, and it will affect you. Right now is your opportunity to uh, get some education. Uh, Like what you talked about as far as caregiving, you mentioned even sundowners. It's very difficult to be a caregiver because someone who has dementia or Alzheimer's, they're very sensitive. My mom would be real sensitive. I'd take her outside and if it was too windy, she would get very agitated. Well, I didn't know what was wrong. I didn't think it was windy. So it really, um, there's just, there's so many things that people out there right now that are not being affected by this disease can do to prepare themselves for the future and to help the people that are out there, even if it's just supporting a caregiver you know or if you know somebody who has a diagnosis and they have a family caregiver stop by and visit them even 10 minutes of your time is a huge relief to that person 
you know, t- to the person is, who's the caregiver, it's also don't walk away from people who've got the diagnosis. Make sure you're there. Because right. as you said, this is going to be, you know, the, the the last time you saw the person is going to be the best you ever saw. Them. Yes, it is. And it so then the next time you yeah. see it, that's going to be then the best you're ever going to see them. Right. So, you know, don't miss those moments. Um, on, the, on the memory loss, because we focus a lot on the memory mm-hmm. loss, Alzheimer's not just about memory loss, but I think that probably is the most emotional thing. Is, sure. Is, is not being, you know, looking at your mom or your dad and having them not remember, you know, who you are. And sometimes the mm-hmm. disease will progress so far that they won't remember family members, um, you know, people with the diagnosis. But um, it, it's also about th- the brain degenerates and it causes a cascade of other physical problems sure as well. Does. That's something else you have to be ready to deal right. with. And that's something else that that people who are working um, the initiative to end Alzheimer's, the birdies to end Alzheimer's, mm-hmm. are trying to find ways to also deal with the cascading associated health concerns. Right. And, and part of that, too, is also going to be the awareness when you're able to pick up maybe subtle things that are happening. Uh, initially, most people who are are starting to show symptoms of Alzheimer's are embarrassed. They're scared and they are trying to hide it. Mm. They are are doing something where they feel stupid. They got lost. They fell down. They realize that something they're wearing looks funny. Uh, And all these things are so subtle to pick up on really as family members and as even just people in a community. We need to be looking for those signs and be prepared to deal with them. Uh, Another thing with uh, people that do have that diagnosis is that they come to a point where they don't know. Uh, To be in all honesty, uh, my mom was a very conservative, quiet person. And uh, a couple years, many years into her disease, she was a different person. She wanted to go out. She wanted to eat with her hands. She wanted to wear funny shorts. And uh, our family talked about it. We're like, oh, my gosh, she would never have wanted this. But you know what? At that point, she did. And so that's what G- we did yeah, for her. give it to her. So. Hang on one second. I want to take a quick break here and wrap this up with Kelly Bussey. Kelly Kenseth Bussey. Can I? You're yeah. Matt's sister, right? I am Matt's sister, yes. That's, yes, or he's my brother. That's right. right. That's right, Kelly. Hang on one second. I'm I'll older. be right back. The more I like to live. Um, Kelly Bussey in the studio, and I just want to give people a chance to to participate in this great event, birdies to end alz.com and you know, just wanted to give you the last word here. Well, I thank you very much. I would suggest, um, if nothing else, even if you can't give, learn something. Go out and find some information that can be helpful to you or someone in your community. Find some way to be involved. Thanks Thanks. so much for being in the studio today, folks. We'll be right back. The views expressed on the following program are not necessarily the views of WIBA, its management sponsors or staff. Broadcasting live from Planet Madison, where everything is beyond parody. This is the Vicki McKenna Show. To be a part of the program, in Madison, call 321-1310. Statewide, call toll-free at 877-235-1310. Or email vicki at wiba.com. Now, here's Vicki McKenna. Welcome back to the program. Eee. Listen to this. Isn't that awful? Does that sound as bad on the mic as it sounds in yes. my ears? Yes, it does. Oh. Stop doing it, please. 
You know, I, Joel. <laughs> Joel's in now. Dave was in. Now it's Joel. Oil can. Oil can. Could we get an oil can? Can of WD-40? I don't know. Household oil. That's what I always use on squeaky hinges and joints. Just get some lard in here and just spread it over everything. <sighs> Yeah, though. But for the meantime, may just not want to do that. You know, just throw that out there. Yeah. All right. We'll still come on the program. We're going to talk about the um, spying that it appears was taking place in Trump's campaign. The government was spying on Trump's campaign. That happened before. Do we remember what that was called? It was called Watergate. Only the Department of Justice wasn't hijacked in service to Nixon's cause. Um, Yeah, so that's coming up on the show. Also, Sean Duffy will be on the program as well. And it does not, the more the polls come out, um, it's looking less and less inevitable that we're going to see a blue wave. All right, before um, we get into any of the more serious stuff, oh, plus we're going to talk about Trump rolling out a plan to try to address the issue of the very, very high cost of prescription drugs. Not all the drugs are expensive, but there are some that are priced prohibitively. There's a whole bunch of reasons why that happens. Uh, So we're going to chat about that on the program, what the president could potentially do that could be more freedom-oriented, less government-heavy hand, because whenever you have price controls, you end up causing all kinds of associated consequences. So we'll get into that, too. No, I wanted to uh, tell everybody to watch one movie. If there's one movie that I think you should watch, no, it's not Avengers Infinity War, which I thought kind of sucked. Don't be sending me your hate mail. I'm just not a Marvel Comics fan. It is the movie I saw this weekend. I think if everybody saw this movie, world peace would be possible. Okay, that's an overstatement. But it is a movie that is so purely charming and such just it is an uncriticizable delight Jim Troopas told me to see this movie a couple of weeks ago when he was on the program. It's Paddington 2. Yes, about the bear. Yes, it is a children's movie. It is a children's movie. And if you don't have children, you should watch this movie. If you don't want to go see a movie with children because children drive you crazy in the movie theater, you should watch this movie. It will make you want to walk outside your door and hug people. That's how good it is. That's why I say it's one of those movies that if you sat next to somebody you vehemently disagreed with politically and watched this movie together, you would probably be like hugging each other by the end of the movie. It's so wonderful. It is just the best. I've unplugged from the world this weekend. I, I decided to obsess over my backyard birds and I watched this movie. Paddington 2. I'm not overselling it. I thought Jim Troopas oversold it to me when he told me that it was just such a purely delightful movie. It was impossible not to be smiling ear to ear at the end of the movie. I thought he completely oversold it. But I got the movie thinking, eh, what's the worst thing that could happen? I watch a movie with a cute bear. It's going to be cute no matter what. It'll just be cute. No, no, no. It's more than that. It's... In fact, it's the, it was a movie that was reviewed by the Wall Street Journal. I think it still has a 98% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. 
Nobody dislikes the movie. I mean, I just think that if you are somebody who would dislike this movie, then there is just no making you happy, period. And you might want to seek out, you know, some counseling because this movie ought to just make you smile. Anyway, we're going to come back and talk about prescription drugs. This topic is not going to make people smile. But Paddington 2 will. And you'll say when you watch this, weird. I heard that on the Vicki McKenna show. Recommending a movie about a bear. From a book. For kids. Be right back. All right, welcome back to the program. The other thing about that movie, Paddington 2, it was so clever. It was crazy how clever it was in terms of the sets and the, 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 the twists. In the, very clever. High, high level of, of cleverness in that. All right. Are we able to, are we scaring up uh, Dr. Hyman to talk about the next segment here or is he unavailable, Joel? What do you think? I'm not getting any news from my producer. All right, I'm going to assume that we are not able to get with um, the Regulatory Transparency Project fellow to talk about Trump's rollout on on what he's going to do about the cost of prescription drugs. Trump is right now looking for ideas. Um, And... You don't want to you don't want to make the mistake of just hammering the problem with a blunt government solution. Um, But there are ways that the government can go about, for instance, um, making it more difficult for companies to find ways to cage out competition in this marketplace. We do have Dr. David Hyman standing by on the phone. Outstanding. Dr. Hyman is the chairman of the FDA group at the Regulatory Transparency Project, uh, formerly special counsel of the FTC. He's also a professor of law at Georgetown Law. And he's on the phone with me to talk about prescription drugs and the cost of drugs. Um, I have a nice article on the Hill that kind of walks people through some basic ideas, Dr. Hyman. But um, it seems to me that um, because the problem is acute for so many people and is painful, that... Um, there's going to be a call for just a blunt government solution that's going to look a lot like price controls. If that happens, what happens to drugs? Uh, so, Vicki, first, thanks for having me on. Um, and I, I wanted to start by noting that the plan that uh, the Trump administration put out on Friday doesn't include anything like the blunt price controls that you're talking about. It actually has a whole bunch of uh, sort of smaller strategies to try and address competition in the drug market, um, a couple of which I think have some real promise, um, and others are, you know, calls to do further studies and so on. But uh, the plan as it is currently out there doesn't include price controls. But I think there's certainly interest in Congress in, you know, either doing price controls or in letting Medicare uh, negotiate for all of the drugs that is purchased by the program. And, you know, it remains to be seen where things will head from here. But answering your specific question, the the risk with price controls um, is they tend not to work and they cause all sorts of distortions. The core problem with pharmaceuticals is they have what an economist would call 
uh, very high fixed cost and very low variable cost. What does that mean? It means it you know can cost hundreds of millions of dollars to make the first pill off the assembly line, and then the second pill you can do for essentially nothing. And the problem is, uh, given that it's risky uh, to develop drugs, you need to have a mechanism where pharmaceutical companies can recover their fixed costs over the sales that they make. And pharmaceuticals aren't the only industry that faces this problem, right? If you're in the movie business, it costs hundreds of millions of dollars to make Star Wars and then a nickel to press the next DVD that someone can watch it on. So, so, yeah, what do you do about what do you do about the fixed costs? Which I I was speaking to our senator Ron Johnson a few months back about this, who indicated that the cost to bring a drug to market has increased almost doubled from about a billion dollars to about two billion dollars if you're bringing a drug to market. That is an extraordinarily high amount of money. So that's leaving out potentially, you know, investment in the development of maybe less uh, marketable drugs, but still necessary drugs. And, and and I mean, that seems to me to be something that could be solved by unbundling some of the regulatory process. Um, So there's certainly been proposals to try and make the drug approval process less costly and time consuming. Um, And, you know, the more expensive it is, the more it influences which uh, drugs are pursued, which diseases are the focus of, you know, R&D, uh, and essentially what innovation uh, you're going to see. And that, by the way, is also the risk with price controls, right? You can make drugs affordable, uh, but there's a sort of goose that lays the golden egg problem, right? You, you need to balance the cost you're willing to spend against the innovation you may be foreclosing if you set the prices right. too low. Um in terms of, you know, strategies for lowering um, the drug approvals, that's not really the focus of uh, the Trump plan. Um, it has other strategies to try and make things more affordable, principally uh, more effort on competition and on some transparency initiatives. Um, but the sort of broader, you know, what should the FDA approval process look like uh, is not really the focus of this plan. And and let me just add, you know, the FDA basically faces a problem, which is it can, you know, it it, it makes two kinds of mistakes. It doesn't approve things that it should, uh, and it approves things that it shouldn't based on the statutory framework, right? And both of those are mistakes. The problem is the latter one, approving things that it shouldn't, causes, you know, lots of public visibility and outcry. People are upset. Whereas if you sort of are slow down the approval process and you throw additional barriers in the way of the drug company, um, there isn't the same pushback uh, by and large. And so there's a tendency for the FDA to make one kind of error at the cost of the other kind of error. Well, and if if there's a bad uh, product that's approved by the FDA, then it's a call for instantly more regulation, more oversight, more policing of the process, which, of course, is 
layering on costs. And as you say, you don't see what doesn't get approved and how slow the process is. And then, of course, you know, then the drugs that come out into the marketplace are very, very expensive. And you say, oh, my gosh, I can't afford these. We need price controls. At least we're not talking about price controls. But that's that's typically what happens. The drug companies are always the bad guys. And so um, then the government is supposed to come in there with yet another regulation. Um, so what are some better ways to do this? There, there are better ways well, to do this. I, I have no idea, by the way, what my drugs cost. So maybe that's part of the problem. I go and I have an insurance card and my insurance card tells me what my drugs cost. So you've, you've anticipated my next point, Vicki, right? Which is insurance uh, is part of the reason why drugs are so expensive because when somebody else is footing the bill uh, and actually, you know, as an open-ended, will tell us what it costs and we'll pay it. Uh, in the absence of effective competition on drug pricing, that's a, a license for very high prices. And, you know, the, the challenge is we want to make sure people get access to drugs, but we don't want to spend every cent we have on paying for it. And so the combination of patent rights plus open-ended insurance coverage is a license for high drug prices. And so you can basically think about moving on either of those dimensions, right? So instead of patents, maybe you want to use what's called a prize system, where if a drug company develops a breakthrough drug, the federal government writes them a check for a sizable amount of money to compensate them for the risk uh, they undertook and the value that they've created. And then you just produce the drug at cost right? Everybody gets the drug for pennies on the dollar relative to our current pricing model. Um, And that has the advantage that, you know, it's the federal treasury that's putting the bill rather than the patients who happen to be sick with that disease. The second strategy is to, you know, rather than having open-ended insurance, you give people money and let them pay for things themselves. And then suddenly, just like you know, if you had insurance for your housing that paid whatever it was you decided you wanted, housing prices would go up. Whereas when people are spending their own money, they start to behave very differently. How do you get the prices? So, how, how do I get my hands on the prices when the insurance companies aren't telling me what it costs? And I can call two different, three different pharmacies. And if I'm asking to pay for cash, I get three different prices. Well, So different prices when people pay cash is not unusual or unprecedented, right? If you drive around uh, and you look at gas prices, you'll see um, that they can vary, usually not, you know, by a tenfold magnitude, but they do vary. Um, Cash prices for generics tend to be much closer uh, to one another because, you know, they're, they're the prototypical pennies per pill kind of scenario. Uh, Branded drugs, and what are called biologics, the prices can be quite high. Um, and the price that any given consumer faces is greatly affected by whether they have insurance and what type of insurance they have. So you'll see what are called formularies. Have you heard this phrase before? Sure. Yeah. So this is where your drug, your the, the intermediary, which is usually called a pharmacy benefit manager or a PBM, says, here are the drugs we're going to cover, and here's your copayment, depending upon which drug you get. So depending on what your physician writes a prescription for, you could be looking at, you know, a very inexpensive drug or a very expensive drug. Um, and depending on your insurance coverage, 
sometimes it's cheaper just to pay for cash as opposed to use your insurance. Sure. But the, the, the problem, it seems, though, is that nobody um, is going to, I shouldn't say nobody, uh, people right now aren't used to this, okay? They're not used to actually saying, all right, I'm going to have to call up Walgreens, I'm going to call up CVS, I'm going to call up Osco, and I'm going to ask what all the prices are. And then I'm going to try to compare that, uh, you know, to what my copay is going to be based on this drug. Now you've got to ask the, the three different pharmacies to run your insurance as well to give you an idea. I mean, what you're asking the consumer to do isn't completely out of the realm of, of rational, but it's an awful lot of, of steps to take just Definitely. to get basic information. And it seems to me that if you want to put the power in the hand of the consumer, you have to put the information and transparency process needs to be greatly improved, not to mention, as you write in your help piece, um, that we need to have you know companies that are able to produce generics off of you know the branded drugs in a, in a quicker capacity than they are right now. Yeah, we've got a lot of work to do. Um, and, you know, we need to do more work on transparency, although uh, transparency, unless people are footing, you know, a material part of the bill, they don't care so much about That's it. That's true. Right. And it, even if they did, it's hard for people to get. Uh, it takes a lot of effort. This is by no means a consumer friendly system. And there, you know, there are two reactions to that. One is to say, well, markets can't work here, so let's just do know, heavy-handed, top-down regulation. The other is to say, this isn't working because we've set it up in ways that don't work. Let's fix those problems. Let's get more transparency and information on pricing uh, and quality, and let's uh, let people make their own decisions because they'll have different preferences. Yeah, and you know, it's also one of those things that is... People get very excited about it. They get they get mad about drug prices. They don't want to really sit down and think about the multiple steps and the because it can, it can get kind of wonky, Doctor Hyman. It really can, and so they just want the government to fix something. Just do it. Just fix this for me. Um, and if the fix is opening up markets and and competition and giving consumers more control. I hope that's the fix. Um, and if the fix is price controls, I mean, ultimately, people react to just the do something, I think, in, in this particular realm, more aggressively than they should. <laughs> I just don't think that people really want to take the driver's wheel on this one just yet, unless they're forced to. Um, I think we'll see. Uh, I guess the point I would make is if you go into a pharmacy, it's full of all sorts of things that you can buy on the shelves and over the counter. And all of those are affordable, and you can figure out immediately what they cost, and you can compare prices if you want to. But as long as but the stuff that's behind the pharmacist's desk, that's a prescription drug, it's a completely different scenario. So that suggests there's nothing specific about pharmacies. It has something to do with the nature of prescription drugs and how we chose to pay for them. And that's what I think we need to fix. Thanks for jumping on the program today. Good to have you. Uh, Dr. David Hyman on the show. And you can read his piece at thehill.com, which we will link up for you guys. He is the uh, a professor of law at Georgetown, but also the chairman of the FDA group at the Regulatory Transparency Project. We'll be right back. All right, welcome back to the program. There's... A lot of hyperbole in my inbox over this Supreme Court decision on on gambling. Um, the world is not coming to a screeching halt because the Supreme Court decided that 
it wasn't it, it did not meet the constitutional test to have Congress say Nevada and only Nevada is allowed to have it. Um, the, the world's not coming to a screeching halt because offshore betting will become onshore betting. Um, I'm still never going to bet on a football game. That's just, you know, the people who do it, do it. The people who do it know how to find it. The people who don't, don't. Uh, I don't understand the um, the sort of rending of uh, of one's soul over this this particular issue. But I'm getting a lot of it and from a lot of people that thinking that Wisconsin is suddenly going to become some kind of great gambling mecca. Um, but, you know, if you're going to spend your money somewhere, please spend it here. Congressman Sean Duffy is standing by on the phone to talk about all things. How you doing, Congressman? I am doing well, Vicki McKenna. How are you? I am. I am fabulous. Here's my question: um, Have you ever? I mean, do, have you ever gone and played a real game of poker in a casino? I have a, in Las Vegas, I have. I played Texas Hold'em. Enjoyed it. I don't get it. Um, I don't get. I don't get Texas Hold'em. No, I don't get the game Texas Hold'em. So and 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 played in our some of our Wisconsin casinos. You know what? If you take it as entertainment, Vicky, you're there to go. I have this much money. I could go to a show. I could go to a movie. I could, or I could go gamble with it. And part of your entertainment budget, that's okay. It's when people get out of hand with the gambling and spend well, more than they can, and it's beyond entertainment, that's some problems. So yeah, I, well, I that's not a problem play. government can solve, and they're going to do that whether the Supreme Court decision comes down the way it did today or if it comes down in a different way. Those same folks are going to have a problem no matter what because you're going to seek it no out. No matter what. Um, I don't get Texas Hold'em, no. That, I don't understand the cards in the middle. I just, I, it's just, I don't know. You know, is, is it like five card stud with shared cards or something? Well, yeah, you can play with their cards. That's right. That's All right. right. All right. So I, then I kind of get it, but I, it's just not, it's not a game that. I just think I'd lose, okay? So I'm not playing that game with anybody because you can all take me for you, my next paycheck, and that's not happening. And Vicky, <laughs> why would you play because you're already a winner? Right. right. So why take that risk? You're already a winner. No need to take a risk of losing. That's right. All right. Simple. I was looking for my bell. I'm like, where the hell's my bell? Congressman Sean Duffy. No, we've got a lot to talk about on the show, uh, not the least of which was, and and let's start with um, a piece I saw by Rich Lowry last week, and that was asking the question, what if Donald Trump actually means what he says and does what he says, then that, that is a serious problem for liberals. And so far, Sean, he's been doing that. He said he would recognize uh, Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and move the embassy there. Well, he did it. He said he would go nose to nose with China over over metal dumping and currency manipulation. He did it. He said he would do something to overhaul the tax code. He did it with your help, no doubt. He said he would roll back regulation dramatically. And again, with Congress's help, he did it. I mean, this is a guy that that if he means what he says, watch out. He said he was going to get out of the Iran nuclear deal. He did it. He got out. He said he was going to get out of I'm going to court that deal for Americans. He's a man who has kept his word. I would tell you there's two glaring places where we haven't uh, been able to keep the promise of this last campaign. Number one uh, is Obamacare, and, and the House members did their part. The Senate uh, wasn't able to get a bill across the finish line. That's not Trump's fault. That's the Senate's fault. And the other one is the wall. Um, and this was one of the main promises made on the campaign uh, trail. And we have to figure out a way when we move forward on border security 
what we can get with border security and DACA, package it together. But we have to build a wall. We have to secure the border. That was one of President Trump's promises. And that one hasn't been not, hasn't been done yet, but I still think we can get that accomplished uh, money-wise, at least by the end of the, uh, well, here, the, the congressional term. Here's what happened. You had, in order to get the wall done, you need the Senate to play ball. In order to get the wall done, Trump had proposed a, a legislation that was, it was odious in some ways, and yet it would have gotten the wall done. And that was permanent recognition of a, of a population of people the Democrats claimed they really cared about, and those were the DACA recipients, in exchange, not just for a handshake on a wall, but actual enabling legislation that would begin the process of constructing the wall. Um, and, and Schumer said he was all for it until... You know, they called they they called him on the table and said, all right, here's the bill. If you're all for it, let's see you round up some Democrat support. They couldn't get it. And so I don't actually blame Trump for not getting the wall done. Um, I blame, again, um, you know, that that 60 vote wall in the Senate that can't just simply that can't just simply harness Republican support for ideas that the majority of Americans want. You know, I, I, I agree with you. This is a, the Senate's problem, not necessarily Trump's, and he's pushed on it. I would just say there's, and there's two other parts of those pillars. The other was the ending chain migration. Um, in essence, if, if, if you're in the country and you're lawful, you can bring your, your children, your parents, your aunts, your uncles, your cousins, you bring your whole family. And then they come in and they bring their aunts and uncles and cousins. And I mean, this just becomes one massive movement of people coming into America. He wanted to end that, and he wanted to end visa lottery. When when you hire at the radio station, Vicky, you don't take 100 applications, put them on the table, mix them up, and just pick out one or two you're going to hire. You actually read the resume. You actually interview people. We used to do the same thing when we bring people in to, uh, to our country. I would just tell you this. I, there could be a deal made, you know, border security, wall funding in exchange for DACA. Um, and what the president said on, on DACA reform and even chain migration was that uh, if you're if you're here and you get in lawfully, you can bring in your siblings and you can bring in your spouse, but that's it. Well, the way the law stands today, if you let the DACA kids in, the 1.8 million, then they still under this law could bring their parents in with them who brought them actually here illegally and their aunts and their uncles yep. and their cousins. And that's why, you know, the, the president's resisting um, doing just the two pillars with, you know, wall funding and, and DACA because a massive amount of people get to come in in addition to the 1.8 million DACA kids and the president's smart trying to push for a little bit more. Well, I'll tell you, I don't blame, I, I don't think, I think most people don't. I don't think most people blame Trump for the stall on the wall. Um, I don't think most people blame Trump for the failure to repeal Obamacare. That's all, that, that's all rests in the hands of the Senate. By the way, on Obamacare, though, by trying to make the um, association, uh, association health care plans easier to create, by unwinding regulation, the tax reform, removing sort of the last vestiges of the, the legal support structure for Obamacare and the mandates, I mean, I think he's done as much as he can um, with an assist in the tax reform law. And so I think now it I, th- I think ultimately you're going to see something that that looks like states applying for waivers and a lot of experimentation going on. Obamacare, no Obamacare. So I, no, I think I, Trump's I, getting credit for, for some stuff associated with Obamacare. I, I would agree with that. And he's made uh, as many strides as he can by himself. I would just make this note, though. We all know that the failure of health care and its demise and the increased cost in our premiums and the increase uh, is in, our, in our deductibles has been from Obamacare. If you, if you actually look at polling, uh, the American electorate doesn't blame Obama anymore. They blame us. 
Um, and so I think it isn't coming upon us to actually fix health care, figure out how to make the system work. Um, and it's, if Republicans think that it's a Democrat problem, you're wrong. It's a Republican problem uh, because they forgot about Obama and just now blame Republicans for their increase. It's a political lifetime ago, too. Remember that is that I, I have a lot of Republicans will say, well, we did Act 10. Well, nobody remembers that. Nobody remembers it. You know, those, those are, these are political lifetime. One election cycle is a political lifetime ago sometimes on issues. But on health care, you know, there's some simple things to do. And it and I don't understand why we. Well, here's the problem. You've got to get rid of a 60 vote rule to do a lot of these things. You don't need a comprehensive bill. You need piecemeal pieces of legislation that can address acute issues right now. So, for instance, the folks right now who are uh, who are just completely marooned and stuck in Obamacare and they absolutely need health insurance and there's absolutely nowhere for them to go because, you know, the, the last insured, you know, packed up and left and didn't turn the lights off. Um, that that person could use some flexibility. That person could use the ability to um, use a direct primary care provider model. That person Person could use the ability to create to become an association unto himself so that he can take advantage of the, the different types of pricing under ERISA. That person could use some breaks here, and that's that's what that person needs. Um, the Republicans could do that if you just looked at this as a piecemeal problem. But 60 votes in the Senate and nothing gets by the Senate unless it's a tax or budget bill without 60 votes. That is just that's the death. That's that's death for reform. I think we lost Sean. Is he? Yeah, we did just lose him. Is he back on? Yeah, he he, he dropped off there for a sec. So, so Sean again. You know, when everything's going through the sixty vote meat grinder, I mean, you know, kiss kiss good reform goodbye unless something is packaged into some giant omnibus nightmare. Listen, Chuck Schumer's a winner with a fifty vote threshold. He, and by the way, if you look at the omnibus, the, the bill, de- yeah, the Democrats control the Senate because of yeah. the sixty vote threshold. Which means they control Congress because you can't get anything done. Correct. You can't get it through the Senate. And what's so frustrating is you and I both wanted to support our troops. They needed extra money. Uh, we got them $80 billion of additional funding so they can actually protect themselves and do their job. And in exchange for that, Chuck Schumer was able to get $63 billion of non defense discretionary spending. That's outrageous. It's it's extortion. That kind of part. It's extortion. And it's, but it it is extortion that was never, it was, that's not mandated. That extortion routine is not mandated. It's not in the Constitution. It's a simple change of Senate rules. The Senate. All it takes is, it takes 51 votes, Vicki. We have, if every single Republican voter did change those rules, they would be changed. And now, if you talk to Chuck, uh, not Chuck, if you talk to Mitch McConnell, he'll say, well, uh, you don't know how many bad pieces of legislation I've stopped from this rule when Democrats had power. Oh, give me a break. A break. Democrats are going to change this rule when they take over control of the Senate. They're not going to keep it. And you'll have squandered one of the best opportunities we have had in the last 50 years to actually make conservative reform. Give it away. The Democrats can change the rule when they're back in power. Absolutely. And you know what? Here's the thing about conservative reform ideas. Um, You know, you give you you have a simple majority. And let's just assume then that suddenly there's fires lit under people like Susan Collins uh, and Lisa Murkowski and folks like that who love to just pretend that they owe no fealty whatsoever to the Republicans. Um, And then we actually learn that perhaps they're not even really Republicans. Then, you know, that that gives people information, actionable information to actually change the content makeup of that body because in wisconsin we did that and the wisconsin senate 
acted. And the Wisconsin Assembly acted. And we got great reforms. We got concealed carry. And I just get, I, I'm telling you the Democrats aren't going to repeal concealed carry because we'll throw their asses out the next election. They're not going to repeal Act 10 because $6 billion would be the cost of the initial tax increase by removing that piece of legislation. So, you know, conservative legislation is good legislation. Typically, it's very popular and it's and it's functional. So anything you're doing, building a wall, ending chain migration, changing the, the, the construction of the health care system, opening up markets for people, jeepers. I mean, th- those are going to they're, they're going to survive in the event that the Senate suddenly becomes Democrat again. I'll make two points. One, conservative policy, limited government, lower taxes, helps economies grow, puts people back to work, work and empowers them to improve their lives and the finances of their family. Number one. Number two, I don't know that I agree with you. I think liberals are so committed to their leftist cause. Um, and the Democrats have gone so far to the collectivist socialist model. I think they are going to try to repeal all the great work that we've done. I mean, even in the House, in, in the House, in the House, uh, Nancy Pelosi is committing to roll back tax cuts that give more families more of their own money. She wants to take that away. She wants to spend it in Washington instead of letting families spend she it wants, So I, think I will say dumb. this: I it, think they're that crazy to roll roll back things like the very popular tax. That's because they're demented and delusional, and they actually they believe that, that people are motivated by this. But they're, but I think when the rubber meets the road, let's assume there was a Democratic president, then I don't know if Nancy Pelosi would want to throw down a repeal of a massively popular tax reform just because, you know, she finally had a Democrat who might sign it. I just, you know, Sean, I mean, they had a chance to to do their comprehensive immigration reform fantasy, and they failed. They had a chance to do socialized medicine, and they failed. So I, I think... Control. And they failed. Hey, I'm out of time. Thanks for jumping on the program, Sean. Good to have you. As always, Congressman Sean Duffy. We'll be right back. Coming up is TDS, Trump Derangement Syndrome. Has it begun to lift... Well, not really, but a whole lot of people now are saying um, the spleen venting on Trump nonstop. It's getting old. You're actually starting to hear liberals say that. The whole resistance thing and shutting down and shouting down people you disagree with, that's, you know, it's not exactly making us friends. We're losing points in the polls. That's ahead, as is Mike Keller. We'll be right back. The views expressed on the following program are not necessarily the views of WIBA, its management sponsors or staff. Broadcasting live from Planet Madison, where everything is beyond parody. This is the Vicki McKenna Show. To be a part of the program, in Madison, call 321-1310. Statewide, call toll-free at 877-235-1310 or email vicky at wiba.com. Now, here's Vicki McKenna. And welcome back to the program. Did you see the ad, Joel, of the long-shot Democratic candidate 
Where is he from? I can't remember where he's from. Who records a television ad that says F the NRA. It's the very first line out of the not an online ad. Unedited, it aired on television. What? Yes, and and the um hang on. How? How does that air? The TV station claimed it could not edit the ad. Uh, for for what like they pro- could have in speech or something? Yeah, they claimed that it was that they couldn't edit the ad. I don't know. I I didn't look at the at the law on that or the rules on that, but I'm pretty sure they could have insisted on the edit. No, the TV station was absolutely uh, complicit in airing this ad. I was they, say, they were enthusiastic and they 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 want to hide behind some rule that they know nobody is because it's Albuquerque. That's not even like a rule. I, I just are you kidding me? I mean, I, the FCC might feel a little bit differently about their. Uh, the FCC inability. did not return a call for comment. Yeah, he was a uh, he's considered a long shot no candidate in the um, Albuquerque area congressional district. I don't know what number that district is, and the ad broadcast on KRQE television in Albuquerque. So, uh, we are not permitted by law to censor the content. You are absolutely empowered to turn down the ad. Not only empowered, but mandated. Yeah. So, (laughs) this airs. This guy's getting a ton of attention. Oh, yeah. But mind you, he's he's a long shot candidate. Not anymore. He's rising up the ranks. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, yeah? Polls are just going well for him? Well, I don't know what the polls are, but everybody knows his name now. His That's, name's Pat Davis. Yeah. Not that we care. I can give him some attention here because nobody's going to vote for him here. Yeah, everybody, go vote for Pat Davis. <laughs> the uh, He wanted attention, and he got it. He wanted This was deliberately designed to create a ton of buzz and a lot of controversy, and it did exactly that. See, I figured what, what the station would say is that, uh, y- you know, like, hey, we got a, a version of the ad that was clean and censored, and then there was nope. some inside man that No, they claimed the they couldn't censor something. it. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Says the station even ran a brief warning about profanity, profanity immediately before the ad. I mean, they confirmed what? they knew what was in the ad. What? F-bombs in political ads. No kidding. It's absolute complicity. Complicit? Com- that's right. Yeah, right complicity. Right, yeah. Complicity. There we yeah. go. You bet. I know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and this guy is going to be carried on the shoulders of, you know, the the hard left Democrats uh, because he did this. The TV station probably isn't going to incur any finalists. That is, unless somebody has filed a complaint against them. I hope they did. I would assume so. Um, and I, I guess, you know, maybe the campaign will reimburse the television station for the fine. Uh, but then I suppose that would be an in-kind contribution. So, Yeah. That's where politics in 2018 is. Man, that's uh, that's something. I wish that was here. Just, just said fun. F the NRA. <laughs> it would have been fun to see. Why? Here. Because again, the this is NR, the NRA has resulted in dead children, dead mothers, and dead fathers. Wow. If Congress won't change our gun laws, we're changing Congress. Wow. Dead kids, dead mothers, and dead fathers. So, um. <clears throat> Not a single one of those mass shooters an NRA member. Uh, In every single one of the cases, the gun control that the Democrats claim they support, Democrats like this clown, claim they support would have not changed anything. So F the NRA, you know, it's the NRA's fault that the gun control ideas from Democrats 
that haven't been implemented wouldn't have worked anyway. But this is just how the Democrats are. This is just a way for this guy to get attention. But again, we always got to play that game. If the shoe were on the other foot, I'll tell you what, if any Republican candidate had put this ad together, sent it to television stations, not a single television station in the country would air the ad. Yeah, what if it had said, like, F Planned Parenthood or something? Yep. You know what I mean? Not a single TV station in the country would have aired the ad. They would have rejected it for content. They would have said, I'm sorry, no, this is against the rules. We can't actually air this. We could get a fine. Thank you for playing. Edit your ad and we'll be happy to air it. But bleep out the F-bomb. That's just how crass... Everything is. And the kids just probably thought that was the cool. Yeah. F that. I hear that word more often than I hear. Excuse me. I swear lately. Anyway, we're going to take a break and be right back. Welcome back to the program. I'm delighted to actually have one of my coworkers. He works right next door. Um, you remember, you know, yeah. I throw things at the window. Yeah, are we too Teller? loud sometimes? Yeah, I'll, I'll, <laughs> one of those things. I'll pound on the window. Yeah, it happens. Um, it's great to actually have you in the yeah, studio thank here. You. It's, Thanks. And in, ordinarily, you'd think, well, she's picking Mike Keller's brain for sports. Something sports driven. Tri- well, kind of, but no. Yeah. Um, we're here to talk about Birdies for Alzheimer's. Yeah. It's a fundraiser that our um, collection of stations is heavily involved in. And the reason I wanted you on is because. Alzheimer's is a fundraiser. We'll talk yeah, about it, yeah. but it's touched you personally. So yeah. I want people to realize that if you're in the audience, you're not alone. And a lot of people are going through this because this is what is the fifth leading cause of, of death of in the death. United States. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so if you don't mm. mind, Mike, and I don't want to be insensitive, but no, it's how, all did, good. how did you suddenly um, become familiar with the disease? Yeah. In about 2012, my mom um, was diagnosed with, uh, with vascular dementia and Alzheimer's, uh, the combination. And, and it changed my family's life. You know, my mom and dad lived in Florida, had for 30 years. They'd been married for 60 years, uh, you know, t- together through everything and, and raising kids. And then, you know, they're where they wanted to be. And then mom got this. There were just signs of uh, some memory loss, repetitive behaviors, and uh, it changed their life. My dad, they stayed in Florida for three more years and then moved home about um, three years ago and just because dad needed help. I mean, the, mom, my mom never went into a care facility. All the, the work was, you know, all the help was done at home, and my sisters were fantastic. That, now, that's Appleton, so I live in Madison. But, so they were there every day, and I was there once a week, and, and it just changed everything. Mom was no longer in the kitchen. Mom, you know, five years ago couldn't drive the car anymore. Uh, she was at the grocery store, which she could do, but somebody would have to be with her. Uh, it just was a... It was a life changer to see her go from so sharp and and being funny and and such a caretaker to being the one on the receiving end to make mm. sure that she took her medication morning, noon, and night and didn't double up. Because if you ask mom, no, I already took it, or I need to take my medication when she hadn't taken it or had already just taken sure. it. Sure. So, you, you, I mean, did, did she perceive that... Did she perceive 
in, in yeah, glimpses that this was going on yeah, and the it's, impact it's it was It's funny having. because I did a, a, a thing, uh, uh, just a personal event four or five years ago and, and went on social media and said I was doing this in some ways to raise money and awareness and support for um, dementia and Alzheimer's for my mom. And my mom got wind of it and was aghast at the idea that I don't have dementia or Alzheimer's. Where is this coming from? Wow. So she was um, she was defiant to the diagnosis, even though she had heard the diagnosis multiple times directly. She was defiant of it. Um, and uh, then, you know, as it as it manifested itself, she would just have short term. Like if you had a conversation with her for an hour, you would repeat, you know, one or two elements three times or four times within the hour. Um, that was how it affected her and not being able to do the things mm-hmm. that she loved to do. So the because so many people, I think, are experiencing this now and, and, and the rise of at least the diagnoses of Alzheimer's, yeah. I'm not sure if it's a, a diagnosis uh, increased or that we're actually seeing a greater incidence of it. But there's been a lot more attention in the last handful of years. And that has to do with because... You know, folks want to find ways to yeah. make this easy, not not just easier on family members, but also for that the perception of that disease. Because it has to, if, if you're somebody who's lived your whole life yeah. and been capable your whole life, that probably feels pretty shattering. Yeah, and it's it's fearful. You know, you watch. Uh, you know, in our case, my family, my three sisters, and myself. And my dad watching my mom go through this. And we, you know, they lived it every day. I had lived it once a week. So you go through that. But then there's the fear on the back end. Um, which of us children are going in to go in that direction? Because, I mean, the percentages, the odds are that it's there. Is there uh, genetic connections? Uh, it, you know, so we not there are a lot of things that you become fearful of. You know, my mom's got 30 years on us. She passed away last February, but uh, I'm the youngest of four. So my sisters, we've had the conversation sitting across from each other at the table and saying about the fear that all of us have that one of them might have it or that I might have it. So the impact is dramatic. And watching my dad go through, you know, being married to my mom for 62 years together from, you know, about 19 years old on and then watching his life-changing moments, you know, out of this, during it, absolutely, after it, after my mom passed a year ago in February, watching his struggle and that change in life is heartbreaking. You know, it's tough. Yeah, and, and there are sort of, from what I remember, having at one point worked in the in the field of, of residential home care, yeah. um, is that it can manifest itself in different ways. And in short term, just, just strictly the short term yeah. memory loss, the midterm memory loss. Uh, and and it can it can make people think they're not recognizing their loved one that this isn't the person this isn't right. my mom or that it's not that you you don't understand that it is it's intuitively you get it but but it is very difficult if you're confronted with just something that's so incongruous to your own memories right. and your own experiences with your family the thing that I think is fascinating now is that there has been a ton of attention in research, um, in treatments. In fact, I was just yeah. reading about one today that was a, a story that was just published, um, some human trials that are already in the works on some new treatments. 
But that requires a sustained push, Mike, right. yeah. and and telling stories like this and getting people to realize that a, a you know an, an event like Birdies for Alzheimer's is just yeah. is not just. You know, it's not just fun. Yeah. It also could potentially change your life someday. Yeah, so let me explain that. Because the American Family uh, Championship Golf Tournament at University Ridge, June 22nd uh, through the 25th, the three days of the tournament, uh, you can go online to birdiesforalz.com. Birdiesforalz.com. And in that, you can donate for you know a, a figure for each birdie scored in that weekend tournament and it will raise hopefully tens to maybe a hundred thousand dollars i don't nobody's going to put a cap on the number but all of those dollars every time dollars are raised they money begets money so money goes into it and then that money actually raises more money because there are grants and there are other things that come in and they're on the edge and and it's at the uw hospital that they're so close in you know the story you're talking about we're getting really close and that's the push. That's the driver. It's true because now you folks Google this because what you see now are markers being identified, a potential you know genetic key that could be unlocked. There's an enormous amount of research going on, and you're right about money begetting money. Yeah. So you raise money, that's a signal to other people to to make substantial charitable contributions as well. But you're right; it's also a ticket in that says we're we have a substantial enough donation that we can actually now qualify to be considered for a major grant. University yeah. of Wisconsin leading the way on that. Um, and it's just, it's exciting to see enthusiasm for something that used to just sort of be, oh, well, that's what, that's what happens to old people. And, and that was what it was 20 years ago, yeah. is that it was more considered something that, you know, you just have to deal with it because that's the, that, them's the, the you know, sure. and the prices of getting old. The and, early onset is the really scary part um, for so many, that, that there are so many who are in their 50s who have had this. You know, my mom was 74, 75 when she was diagnosed, uh, but that's scary in and of itself. And going through it was heartbreaking, uh, but there are other elements where it, it hits uh, family members earlier yeah. in that lifespan, and that's a scary thing. And we, you know, the cool thing is when you can do something about it. You know, when you know that your dollars are there and they're getting close. And you oh, feel and these like, dollars, we should yeah. point out, these dollars are not dollars that are sliced off with right. major administrative fees. These are. This is a fantastic return on investment for a charitable contribution. So yeah. we're not. We're not. This isn't one of those charities that's scraping off a whole bunch of money right. so people can drive nice cars. These. Yeah. This is a labor of love, in order to try to get money into research. You know what I thought was so fascinating is I was and I'm, I'm I read the research as best I can and understand it as best I can with my limited skills, is that we may be able to find the the way to unlock the box and understand the process. How does the disease begin? When does it begin? Yeah. Is there a way to interrupt this process anywhere along the line? And that seems to be where a lot of the exciting research is coming from as well, in, in addition to yeah. some of these exciting treatments. And to find the genetic markers of that, you know, so you can Incredible. tell earlier. And in the earlier diagnosis that you're maybe more susceptible to, for those markers to have dementia and Alzheimer's, in, we identify those earlier in the process, then you can treat them earlier. Maybe there is a way to go through that process so all of this and, and when it's when it's in your backyard, okay, so you know, for me, it's my mom. All right. So and so many of us have the personal end of the story. And once it becomes personal, now 
were active and involved. Well, here's a chance to maybe hit it before it ever becomes personal. You know, if it's not been personal in your life, maybe in donating for, with birdies to nalz.com, maybe if you donating on that site, maybe it doesn't ever hit your family. Maybe it doesn't have the personal connection. Because I think we all know when we're hit on this personally, it then it becomes a fight. And you can get this before it becomes a fight for you. I'd love to see this as I'm looking. Already dollars are being raised. Yeah. If you go to birdies uh, to endalz.com, I'd love to see this number just yeah. just go nuclear. It would be you fantastic. You know, I have a question, though. Yeah. This is birdies. You're betting on people getting birdies. Yeah, and there will be a lot of them. <clears throat> I mean, there are a lot of birdies, which is one under par, by the way, on a hole in, in the game of golf, if for somebody who might not know. And for that three-day tournament. we got good people playing oh, in this goodness. tournament, right? There okay, we're not talking a, like like. Golf no, hacks like no, me. No, it's not you and I trying to okay. make birdies. These you are the could champions make a birdie. to I couldn't. <laughs> and there will be a ton of birdies on the three-day tournament at University You can bet Ridge. on every single one. Yeah, every single one. That's It's like uh, when you get pledges for every mile you run in a half marathon or a marathon. Somebody says, I'll give you 30 cents a mile or whatever. That's what you're putting on for every birdie. Yep. 25 cents a birdie, and it will add $25 up. $25 a birdie. Yeah, $50 <laughs> a birdie. Free. Somebody's got some money. Come on. Um, and this is, again, um, there's a lot of exciting stuff going on at the University of Wisconsin, yeah. right? Right in our hometown, in our backyard, if you're not from the Madison area listening to this. Um, but... The idea is to get the answers. To yeah. We're getting close to the answers. Anybody who's been following this, we're getting very, very close here. And, again, the, the way to get to the answers is to make sure the research keeps yeah. continuing. So. Smart people need uh, our donations to get smart people to get more money in the process, and uh, and we'll get there. I mean, we're, we're – they're close. So when they're close, if we can help – get them closer and get to the finish line. That's the, what this is all about. And I think, as I look at you, you're about my age. Yeah. As I look at you, I think that in our lifetimes, Mike, we're yeah. going to see something absolutely phenomenal. Oh, I'm right with I, you. I, I, at least I, I, I pray for that. Yeah. And I pray for your family. Thank and I know you. a lot of people in the listening audience do as well. And please go to birdies to end alz Spell it out. birdies yeah. to com uh, And make pledges yeah. for birdies. We do shouldn't it. say bet. Right. No, it's not betting. It's not betting. No. Pledge you, to Bert. You're pledging. And, yeah. and you're pledging for quality golfers it's here. It's good stuff. All right. Mike Heller, as always. Thanks, um, great. Thanks, thanks for coming on the program. You bet. Great to have you on the show. we got to take a break. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the program. So I had this idea, and Joel thinks I'm I'm not thinking this through so well. My idea, we're going to get to David Johnson here and talk about the uh, problem that the Democrats are having. It's not necessarily, not necessarily converting into anything good for Republicans, but uh, we'll get to that in just a sec. But yeah, so I had this idea that has nothing to do with politics. Um, as I obsess, I obsess over two things in spring and summer. I obsess over birds, and I obsess over flowers. Two okay, things. All right. Sure. So I love exotic flowers that will never survive Wisconsin temperatures. And what I typically do every year is I buy the flowers, and I either plant them and then just deal with them dying, because I'm not going to dig them up, or I put them in containers. 
And usually I, I plant them and just let them die, you know, because then the Wisconsin frost kills them. But I thought, this is what I'm thinking. All right, I'm ready. For the bulb plants. The bulb plants. Because I don't really want to have to hassle with plants in the wintertime. For the bulb plants, plant them in the container, in the ground, container and all. And then it's much easier just to lift the container out in the cold season and store it in your garage. Maybe. I, uh, Why? I, I don't want to say that they, your idea is crazy. I'm not, I'm not saying that. Would they, a... So my question to you plant people out there, will <laughs> they survive the container, or do I have to get new containers for them? See, my thought. Really, if I'm going to get new containers for them, uh, well, maybe I'd be willing to do that because I save the containers and just use them over and over and over again every year. See, I just kind of assumed, though, that someone had probably thought yeah. about this and You're that probably we may right. have heard about it if Anyway, that was my idea for like calla lilies and dahlias and some of these other, you know, cool but plants that will not survive the Wisconsin winter. Yeah, so I say you just do it. You don't let, you know, you don't even look it up. You don't don't let the naysayers stop me? Yeah, just do it and see what All happens. Right. Let's do That's it. my plan. I'm sure other people have thought of it, and it probably works. Now that I think about it, it more, I can't see how it wouldn't work. David Johnson, Strategic Vision, is not on the program to talk about flowers, although I bet you have a beautiful variety in Georgia. I'm jealous. We we really do. Uh, and a lot of these flowers will survive the temperatures of Georgia <clears throat> because... Normally... Uh, but not like the one we had this past year. Yeah, are you Zone 7? Listen to me. No, let's talk about politics. I think you're Zone 7, or I think, in Georgia. <laughs> Joel is looking at me. You're a new homeowner, my friend. You are going to learn these things. You're going to obsess over these things, I promise. Uh, or your wife will, and you will learn by extension, by osmosis. All right, sounds All right? good. Uh, David, I, I don't, you've been looking at this as well. A couple of things. The, the key constituencies for the Democrats are problems for them in the polls. You're talking about millennials uh, saying now that they don't support Democrats. It doesn't necessarily mean they that they're converting into Republican voters. They're just not Democrats. Um, you have a, a greater number of black voters who are saying they're not voting Democrat. doesn't necessarily mean they're voting for Republican. Maybe they're not voting at all. That's still a problem for Democrats. Um, same way. And at the same time, these polls are coming out that start to suggest the blue wave may not be, you know, the blue tsunami may not be coming. Um, you have liberals in entertainment culture telling other liberals to back off Trump derangement syndrome. Um, and, and rolling their eyes when Tom Steyer buys crazy ads accusing, you know, mothers who have sons that support Trump of, of you know, mothering, of, of giving birth to killers. It's, is something going on? It is. What we're seeing is Trump's numbers are beginning to go up. People might not like him personally. They might not like his mannerisms. But what they're seeing is his policies seem to be succeeding. And his numbers are going up, and people are hearing the Democrats talk about impeachment, all of this crazy talk, and they're getting scared. They're scared that Democrats will get in, disrupt everything, and we'll be back to the Obama years or worse. So, yeah. But I don't know if that ex – I think that explains – some of the liberals fear about this nonstop Trump derangement syndrome that you see on entertainment television, on news television. But does that explain young voters who are looking at the Democrats and looking at Trump and saying, or maybe not even looking at Trump, but looking at the Democrats and saying, no, thank you? Does that explain the a 10-point swing 
in black voters from at the very least Democrat to unaffiliated. Something I think it's more than just impeachment talk. There's something there seems to be something else. Black voters are seeing the economy is improving for them. The unemployment is the lowest for African-Americans since 1972. That's one of the reasons we're seeing this. Millennials are seeing that the tax cuts, they're seeing the economy is moving up. And that's why we're seeing these numbers uh, switch as well. And the millennials, look, this is a group that say they're socialists, then they like capitalist ideas. Um, 44% of them didn't even know what the Holocaust is. So as far as them being committed voters who are going to show up, it's hard to really view that as happening. But the less that they are supporting Democrats, is a very bad sign for the Democrats. Yeah, it's it's calls into question whether this blue wave is upon us or not. I think it's dissipating. I do too. It feels it feels like it is. Um, I don't know if that that's not scientific. That's not polling, but it just does well, feel like it shows is. Shows that the Democratic lead is going down. No matter what poll you look at, Trump's numbers, while they're not you know Ronald Reagan like numbers, they're going up as well. And this is bad news for the Democrats. The Democrats may have peaked too early, and they may have gone overboard enough that it's really woken up some Republicans as far as what the stakes are. Interesting. So the resistance peaked early. I think it did. I think the same thing happened in Wisconsin, David. I cannot help but keep seeing comparisons to recall mania and Trump and Walker derangement syndrome here in Wisconsin, um, where you had right after Act 10, there was, I mean, almost within a couple of months, you saw an effort to recall the governor. Um, You know, within a couple of months of Trump's inauguration, the resistance began. You know, this has been going on for a long time. There's only so much you can you can squeeze out of this orange before, you know, people are just moving on. Oh, no, I agree. But we're still very early in the game, too. Well, I don't but know. We're kind. Of, we're getting close. We're getting close to serious campaign we're time, close to Vicky. But I mean, there's still time for the Democrats to recover. There's still time for Republicans, and we're famous for doing this of snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. True. Trump, what though, isn't going to be our problem. They, no, it's the Republicans in Congress. They need to really get on board with his agenda. They need to get his nominations uh, to the bench and the federal positions approved. Yeah, because the Republicans in Congress, the congressional Republicans could suffer, um, whether the millennials or the black voters or whoever are getting blasé about Democrats because they're all they are, the same old, same old stuff about telling them, uh, you know, telling everybody how miserable, you know, and awful and racist everybody is, um, which is just a broken record at this point. But the Republicans can can figure out a way to screw this up, too, as um, I was chatting with Congressman Duffy, who said that the, the failure to repeal Obamacare with insurance premiums going up, that's Obamacare insurance premiums going up, um, is now being blamed on Republicans, not because they passed Obamacare, but because they didn't repeal Obamacare. And don't forget, Republicans have been running since 2010 on the promise to repeal Obamacare. Interesting. That... And then when they got the chance, they failed. Yeah, but they're not... And that had nothing to do with Donald Trump. It had to do with congressional Republicans. It did. And it and it wasn't... It's not people saying we blame them for passing this law. 
It's just that this has been going on for a while. We've been suffering. We blame them for not doing anything to fix it. Whatever the fix would be, at the same time, the Democrats, you know, any fix that might be forthcoming, the Democrats would try to, you know, turn into some kind of you you want to see sick people die or whatever that is. But I think people do want to see some action on this, and we're not seeing a lot of action from Congress. That said, on Trump, the, the, the rap was about six months ago that if you were a congressional Republican facing reelection, you were going to have to defend Trump. And that, that and a whole bunch of Republicans didn't want to necessarily, you know, put themselves in a position where they wanted where they had to defend Trump. I don't think that's a risk any longer. I think being tied to Trump is not something that is going to be a net negative for most candidates. I, in fact, you even see some Repub- or some Democrats looking to try to at least cozy up a little bit with some of the stuff on trade to try to buy some populism, you know, some populist vote love in the working class. It could be. <clears throat> it's not the overwhelming negative that it was before. In some of the suburban districts right now, the Republicans have to defend because courts gerrymandered them, such as in Pennsylvania, it could become an issue. But overall, he is not the albatross that everyone thought he was going to be. He really isn't. And in, in, in as the media, I think that this is, again, going back to the, sort of the obsession, the single-issue obsession. For for instance, in Wisconsin here, it was all the time recall, nonstop recall. You always had to confront the, the question and the, and the conversation about the recall. It was all politics all the time, and it was always recall. It's all Russia or all porn star all the time, and it's always impeachment. Um, and that just that just absolutely wears on people. But but it, those suburban Republicans, the sort of soft suburban, never Trumpish kind of Republicans, those are the people who are occupying the pages of of National Review. Some of them, not all of them, many of whom are coming around with Rich Lowry's piece. Uh, Rich Lowry being you know sort of the most prominent among them, saying um, at some point. Don't we just say Trump is getting it done at some point? You know, if the guy is actually a man of his word on the big things and he's actually doing these things and these things are producing results like getting out of the Iran deal, the tax cuts, you know, the regulatory rollback. Isn't it isn't that something we all have to just accept as a as a net positive? I mean, that's you even seen the never Trumpers move in that direction, not Bill Kristol, but a lot of the other ones. They are because they're seeing that his policies are working. If you look overall, he's had one of the most successful uh, beginnings of any administration, going all the way back to Franklin Roosevelt, as far as the things he's been able to achieve. He's reshaping the courts. He's rolling back these executive orders of the Obama administration. On foreign policy, he's completely redirected foreign policy that people now realize when an American president says something, he means it. 180 on foreign policy and the and the reaction was dramatic. I think that actually is more I think that has more of an impact even though maybe we're not national security voters any longer like we were when you know in in the immediate um years after 9/11. But when you see David, you know, just how a completely, you know, opposite approach to foreign policy produces dramatic results. I'm talking about North Korea reaching out only what not that many. Last summer, there was, you know, the fear that Donald Trump was going to get Hawaii nuked by North Korea. Now we're talking about peace. 
Um, you know, China was supposedly going to just destroy us in a trade war. Now they're talking about, you know, uh, ameliorating the the United States on issues of currency and some of the metal dumping that's been going on. So you've got China. I don't know if they're going to play ball, but they're acting like they want to play ball. You've got Europe, who normally stands there and wags its finger at the United States about our foreign policy at, at the worst um, shrugging its shoulders and saying, well, that's the that's what the United States is going to do. And at the best, actually standing shoulder to shoulder with the administration. I think that that you can't help but cover that. And that's where the photo opportunities are coming from for the president. And that I think people are noticing and in, in, in processing in a way that maybe they can't even articulate it, but it makes them feel good about being American. And it's driving the Democrats crazy. It is. You know, you got... They don't quite know what to do. They don't know. How do you oppose the president when he maybe is actually going to be the guy who paves the way for peace in North Korea? How do you oppose the president when he's the one guy who finally kept our commitment to make Jerusalem, you know, to locate our embassy in Jerusalem? Obama said we were going to do it. Bush said we were going to do it. Clinton said we were going to do it. But he actually did it. How do you actually oppose him on taking, you know, on, on, on finding the top five leaders of ISIS and isolating him? How do you oppose him on stopping Iran from, you know, from harassing its neighbors and developing a nuclear weapon. But the Democrats are, and we're seeing this. I know, but I think that may have some reason, something to do with this fallout in key constituencies that they're going to need to actually make that blue wave happen for them in November. Maybe I'm, oh, I agree. Maybe I'm feeling too chuffed. Maybe I'm feeling a little too optimistic here, David. No, I agree with you completely. Thank you for jumping on the program today. David Johnson, Strategic Vision. We'll be right back. You know, this is going to sound weird. I think there's a Trump effect on polls. And not in the way most people are looking at the Trump effect. So the Trump effect can have was it had a net positive effect on the economy because of the deregulation and the kinds of stuff that was going on. But most of the time, the pollsters say Trump effect. They're talking about negatives. Does, the, does is there a Trump effect on on, you know, Republican polling numbers in specific congressional races? I what I'm what I'm talking about is while the media and this may not have been true six months ago, I just think I think it's true now. Well, the media is obsessing over things that seem inane. Stormy Daniels, Stormy Daniels, Stormy Daniels. You know what? All of the Stormy Daniels obsession got three points knocked off Trump's approval ratings with women. And he picked up three points with men. So that was a, that was a wash. What I'm thinking is just stories like North Korea and the, the Jerusalem story. And, and this is... This shakes out in a way that is tough to measure in polls, but it makes people just say, yeah, this guy's getting it done. And they don't hate it. Have a great day.